Hi, I'm Alana Gallo. I'm a teacher, a mom to four, and the founder of Play, Learn, Thrive. Join me as I chat with real parents and experts as we explore all things play and child development. It's time to take the focus away from you and put the responsibility of playtime back into your kiddos' hands. So if you're tired of planning, leading, and facilitating play sessions, you've found the right place. Each week, we'll explore the importance of play and how it supports child development, along with simple ways to incorporate play in a purposeful way, so you can raise confident, self-motivated kids who enjoy playing independently. Hey guys, it's Alana. Today, we're here with Nasli Blackwell. She is a pediatric speech and language pathologist. So would you want to give us just a little bit of your background? Yes, I'm a certified pediatric speech language pathologist. I have a background in the public schools and private practice settings, um, and I've worked with a really wide variety of disorders. I have a passion for early childhood, though, and that's kind of where my focus has been in the last four years. Awesome. And I know that you're big into Montessori. would love to hear a little bit about that. My kids go to a Montessori school. Montessori is one of those philosophies that I just feel really connected to as a parent. Um, but I also feel like it's not something that a lot of parents know about. So coming from your background, just kind of how did you get into or kind of become aware, I guess, of that philosophy and how, how might it impact, I guess, your, your professional opinion, if that makes sense? Yeah, so um, I actually attended Montessori school for my early childhood education. So that was my introduction. Um, And I transitioned to public school in first grade. So I um, have a very fond, just like a fondness for Montessori. I have very deep um, and meaningful memories from those early years that I think really kind of validate um, the Montessori philosophy. And so as an adult, I knew that I wanted to implement that for my son. He's about to be 19 months old. And I try my best to implement that at home. And as well as um, he'll be starting like half days at his Montessori school next week, actually. So I'm excited for him to experience it in the classroom um, as well as at home. So um, that's kind of my personal experience of what brought me to it. And then, of course, um, from a pediatric speech language aspect, I have had several of my patients um, who attend Montessori school and collaborating with Montessori teachers in that way as well. Love that. Awesome. So um, let's talk about, I guess, we're going to mostly focus, guys, on speech language development and kind of how that um, intersects with play. And and I know just from my own reading, but I'm going to let you elaborate, that a lot of speech and language um, is developed not only through just parents, you know, obviously speaking and reading with their kids, but while kids are in play. So can you just talk a little bit about that and how, um, you know, whether it's important, how important is it, how, how exactly does play impact speech and language development for kids? Right. So there's been a ton of research on this particular topic as far as the role of language in play um, and child development. And um, back in like the earlier years, like in the 70s, 1970s, um, there was this debate going back and forth about um, is the is it a linear um, thing? Is it like the development of play equals the development of language, right? Or um, is it more of like 
the um, opportunities for play facilitate the cognitive and the emotional, the physical, the social development um, in in tandem with the symbolic play skills that that lang- for language as far as speech language pathologists we are looking at um, the symbolic. Um, play skills specifically as it relates to language. So um, recent research has shown that um, there's a lot of it comes down to actually, Alana, how people define play. So um, defining play is something (laughs) that sounds like it would be easy, but it's actually a really complex thing to define what is play. And um, what are the confines of play and what does it look like? Um, And so that all can be debated. But the main important thing is to remember that play is the way that our children are learning about the world. And that's the way that they know um, how to explore and they develop their understanding of the world through play. And that does directly involve language because um, they're going to be labeling. They're going to be um, eventually talking about, you know, whatever pretend play they're doing in a sequence of events of of the pretend play. Um, Those kinds of things um, are the kind of precursors to them developing further literacy skills. And it's all this like one kind of long timeline that starts when they're really little in play, basically. So you mentioned something about symbolic. What was the phrase that you used? Symbolic play. Yeah. So can you, I think I know what you're talking about, but I also read and like consume all things play all the time. So for (laughs) people who probably don't have such a like ridiculous obsession. Um, can you explain what that means for other parents who that I think that term might be something that they're not necessarily used to hearing? Yes, absolutely. So symbolic play is when children begin to think flexibly and creatively about objects um, as they can, as you can see them using an object to represent or substitute another object. So for example, if someone, um, an older child that loves Harry Potter, if they grab a chopstick and they say, this is a wand, right? Mm -hmm. So they're, they're adding their own symbol to an existing object and creatively and flexibly using that in a different way. Um, So that's essentially what, what symbolic play is. Awesome. And I feel like that starts pretty young. I mean, I, at least I know my two-year-old, um, she definitely like, she'll pick up anything that's flat and put it to her ear and say like, (laughs) she has this whole, hi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you even like, she's having a whole conversation. I'm like, are you having a conversation, like a dinner reservation or something? I don't understand. (laughs) Um, She has this whole little like thing that she says every time she, she'll put it to her ear, like as if it's a phone. Um, Mm -hmm even if it's not a phone. So I'm guessing that that symbolic play does start on the earlier side. And obviously I'm assuming gets more complex. Yes. When the kids grow. Yes, absolutely. So um, between the age of one and two is really when it's, you start to see it developing in those ways. The phone example is a great one that happens pretty frequently. Um, My son, like I said, he's going to be 19 months. He loves to do, you know, baskets or things and flip them over and put it on my head and say it's a hat, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot of things that start out kind of in that more simpler 
um, instance. And then, yes, over time, that develops into more um, complex pretend play, which those play sequences, that's kind of the precursor, like I was saying, to literacy skills. So whenever they are given a prompt in elementary school, right? I mean, I know you're an English teacher, so, you you know, but like (laughs) when they get those first prompts um, in early elementary, that is really where that comes from, the ability to start a storyline, right? The ability to think of like the characters and what's going to happen next and what, you know, what's the conflict and what's the conflict resolution and all of those things that this is where it starts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I feel like um, one of the things that I've noticed, and this is again, like I'm, I am an English teacher and I teach older students, high school Mm -hmm. level. Um, But one of the things I feel like I have noticed over the past 10 years of my teaching has been sort of the lack of ability to do that, like mm-hmm. to kind of create something from nothing. It's, it seems to be a skill that kids are struggling with. Is that something that you s- have seen in your practice? Like over the years that you feel like kids are struggling more with um, being on that create in that creative space because they're not necessarily participating in my mind. A lot of it, I think is because I feel like kids are not participating in real play, like child-led play, like the way that we used to. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm curious to see if that's been your experience. So I think that um, the main thing that I've observed as far as um, patients go is a kind of that direct correlation of screen time versus Mm -hmm. playtime. And that's really, that's kind of the reality that we live in now is how much of their time is spent being passive versus being active in play. Um, And I think that, you know, that's more of what I would attribute it to just based off of my personal observations. I'm I'm sure there's research out there that would like maybe detail that further, um, but that's been my observation. Yeah, no, and I I totally agree. I think part of, um, you know, the screen time, it's like screen time, you say screen time, and it's just like, you're going to get like attacked no matter which way you are. (laughs) Um, But it's like, for me, my biggest thing is, I mean, we're we're not totally screen free in our house. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. we're just not, it's just, I've got, you know, a five and a half year old, four year old, two year old, and I'm pregnant. Like, there's no way that we couldn't occasionally, you know, (laughs) be doing TV or a movie night or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, we don't, that said, we don't do iPad time. Like my kids, I mean, they've been on an iPad probably an hour, like their whole life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we just don't. And it's just not something that they expect. Um, they do get to watch TV here and there. But for example, my nanny was away for two weeks and we were both home with the kids and it was, you know, they were home for snow days and it was mm-hmm. very, very chaotic. So they watched a lot more TV than what they normally would. Um, and so after those two weeks, it was like their behavior was just, it, it was just getting progressively worse. And my husband was the one surprisingly, cause I feel like oftentimes um, it's me who's like, we need a screen detox. But he was like, we got to like the TV's got to go for a couple weeks because these kids are acting crazy. And I was like, no, I totally agree. Um, so starting this week, like they haven't had, they haven't watched any TV and it's just amazing to see like they've, 
even it, even again, my kids are very independent in their play and they, they spend significant amount of times in play in active play versus on screens. Mm-hmm. And even just those two weeks, like seeing their behavior from there and their ability to, to, um, just to play with each other compared to this week is like insane. Like this week, they, every afternoon they're coming home, they're like building stuff with boxes. They're doing these coloring activities together. They're having these conversations that I'm like, what, you know, and versus the two weeks that, you know, the afternoons were kind of like, all right, we're going to veg out in front of the TV because like, I, like I said, I'm pregnant and like mm-hmm. 2 PM, I'm a pumpkin. Mm-hmm. So it was like, all right, we're going to watch some shows and then daddy will come down for dinner. And then, you know, and, um, it's just been such a significant difference. Um, even in kids who don't typically get a lot of screen time. So I can only imagine the, that's the kids who do have a lot of screen time and you're right. It's not that it's necessarily the screen time, which mm-hmm. we know is not great. Like the, you know, the overstimulation and the, you know, all of that stuff, like the, to the developing brain and the eyes and all that. But it's more of that, like that screen time, your, if your kid is on a screen for X amount of hours, it's X amount of hours that they're not playing. Right. Right. So, and, yeah. And the, and I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there because a lot of times it's not always what they are getting. It's what they're not getting. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's about, yeah, the absence of um, that dedicated time for their cognitive skills, which go hand in hand with their play skills to be developing. And, um, you know, cognitively, if I am bored and I need to figure out something to do, my brain is going to have to actively solve that problem, right? So those are things that um, when we allow, when we set up an environment, which goes back to the Montessori, um, when we set up a prepared environment for children, that is an invitation for them to actively use those cognitive skills. Um, the play skills and the language skills develop through that. Um, and so you, you'll you see too, oftentimes um, children that have attention deficit um, or hyperactivity disorder, they, um, that's part of um, what I was going to share with you actually is research that was done um, examining the role of language and play um, and they looked at four groups. They looked at um, children with um, developmental language disorder, children with autism spectrum disorder, and children with um, ADHD. Um, and then they also had a control group of typical developing children. And the results were pretty amazing because um, the role that language plays in play, um, it can be from the adult that's observing in our perspective, we really make a lot of judgments based off of like what language they're using, how, the, you know, how much language they're using um, given their age, um, when really there's a lot of play that is nonverbal. And, mm-hmm. um, and so this particular research study, it just came out in July um, of 2020. And this particular one was interesting because they compared um, the play assessment from the adult's perspective for children where it was audible what they were saying and children that you couldn't hear what they were saying. 
And the judgments were significantly different based off of um, just having that audible and having to interpret their language skills in addition to their play skills, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and I guess one thing I would, I kind of, that comment, that a comment that popped into my head is that, you know, again, us adults, we tend to interject our own thoughts, feelings, concerns, whatever's into kids play. Like for example, if your kids are playing or they're doing something and, you know, maybe they're using an object in a way that doesn't make sense to you and you go over and you're like, oh, that's not a blah, blah, blah. Uh Or you kind of, oh, you're building a this and you're prompting them or you're kind of, um, you're engaging like, right. I'm, I'm air quoting right now. You're, (laughs) you're engaging with your kid, but you're really actually disrupting them in my mind. I feel Mm -hmm. like, you know, as observers, you're really not supposed to engage and Mm -hmm. even slightest things like that, like saying to your child, Oh, um, you know, Oh, that's not a, you know, spoon. That's a, or that's not a sword. That's a spoon or whatever. You know, you're, you're totally changing the dynamic of their play. Mm-hmm. Do you, I, I wonder, I don't know if that even makes sense with what you were talking about, but I feel like as adults who are observing and they're making their judgments based on what these kids are doing, if they're putting themselves, like, do, did the study talk at all about how the adults were observing? Like, were they participating? Were they were they making judgments based on what they seemed to think should be happening? Does that make sense? Yeah. So in this particular study, they had, um, so the adults weren't a part of the play at all. So it was free play and an environment that was set up with um, a various amount of kind of free play toys. Um, And so the children were not prompted in any way. They just were allowed to play in this room. And it was like one of those, um, what's it called? Not double mirror. What's one of those one way, one way mirror. mirror, Yeah. Yeah, One of those situations where, um, so there's no adult in the room. They are just observing from um, this booth, like observation booth. And they um, are given, you know, for, in our profession, we do have assessments for play. So there are certain um, assessments that we use that look for specific um, play skills um, at, at a given age. And so they were using those assessments, but they were just using them either with um, having the language component and get, getting to hear what the child was saying or in a separate booth where they didn't get to hear anything the child did or did not say. And they had to just observe and, and make judgments off their play without any of that language input. Does that make sense? So that's what they were doing. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That's super interesting. Yes. So um, the results of that really, the conclusions that they, they had from the study were really interesting to me as a clinician and as a parent. So, um, and as a Montessorian. (laughs) So it's, um, so basically what they found was that, um, language has a huge, makes a huge difference in how we interpret a child's play, right? Because 
the same way that I might scaffold something for one of my patients as far as like trying to teach them a skill, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I It's the same way for us. We kind of follow the child's lead and we interpret the things that they're saying like in combination with the actions of what they're doing to to make those judgments, right? To come to those conclusions of, oh, this is what they're using that object as, or this is what, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. that um, that's what's happening when we are observing with the language. But when we're observing without the language, there's actually a lot of similar um, symbolic play skills that we can take away without the child giving us those hints and clues verbally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what they found was that for the children, um, for the typical children, they scored the same regardless. So there was no difference in the scoring when they, when the adult heard what they were saying and when they didn't hear what they were saying. Um, but for the children with um, language disorder, they scored significantly better when they were in the room that they couldn't hear them because the the adult wasn't making a judgment mm-hmm. off of their yeah. lack of language and their lack of communication. They were making a judgment simply based off of their observation of their gestures and their symbolic play with the objects and what they were doing with the objects and the sequences um, and all of that. So they found that, which I thought was inter- super interesting. And then they also found that for the children with um, ADHD, it was actually a more negative effect when they couldn't hear them. So the children with ADHD, when they were observing them and they could hear them verbally, it made a lot more sense, kind of the sequences that they are doing um, and made a lot, I guess it just clarified mostly like what those children were doing in play Mm -hmm. versus the children with ADHD, when they were observed without um, any audio, those children had significantly lower scores because it from with no kind of verbal indication, just watching their sequences, mm-hmm. it was more disorganized. It was harder to follow, yeah. right? Like there was all that of these. Sense. Yeah, there was all of these other things going on. So um, then for the children with autism, it was the same. So for the typical developing and for autism, it was the same with or without the audio. But for the language disorder children, it was significantly higher when you didn't have the language available. And it was the opposite for ADHD, which I thought was super fascinating. I think that makes sense, though, because, again, like what you were saying with this, with the kids who were diagnosed with ADHD and who whose play might be more disorganized or it's mm-hmm. just going to be you know, yeah, it's just going to be more disorganized. Like they're going to be doing things in a way that we might not, um, or people who are kids who are typically developing are not going to necessarily do things the same way. So then Mm -hmm. you're making judgments based on that versus having that language where they're explaining to you, or at least you're being able to hear them. So you're kind of explaining to yourself what they're doing. So that makes sense. But yeah, that's so interesting. I wonder what, how do you think that's, well, I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this, but you tell me. <laughs> what do you think that that kind of research is going to have? Like, do you feel like that would have an impact on, for example, like preschools, early education? I know you said you worked in the public school system. I feel like we're, you know, for the most part, um, I hate to say failing our students who have 
um, different learning needs, but that's mm-hmm. sort of how I feel. Um, so I will say it. So do you feel like stuff like that, um, research like this, it it can, I think would be a helpful, you know, helpful for, for people in those lower grade levels, especially to have that information so that they can be more aware of how they're educating. Does that make sense? Yes. I think, um, the education, like the educator, so whether that be um, the teacher, the Montessori guide, whether that be a clinician, um, any kind of therapist or a parent, you know, whoever the adult observer is, this information um, is helpful for that because we want to be aware as the adult what lens we're perceiving from, right? And so, For me, that's one of the things I love about Montessori, and that's one of the things that I love about being a speech-language pathologist. Most of the work comes from observation. Most of the decisions come from observation. Now, the, the biggest difference between if I was a Montessori guide versus being a speech-language pathologist is that um, in the Montessori classroom, they're really trying to observe without judgment. And they're really trying to observe to see exactly what's happening and where they need to meet the child. And that is what we do as therapists in therapy, but that's not what we do when we evaluate a child and do an assessment. So it's two very different types of observation when it comes to when I'm evaluating a child um, and, and completing assessments those are judgments. I mean, that's what they are, you know, yeah, and so by nature. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just, I mean, that's what the, they were created for to find, okay, well, here's, here's the average, here's the milestone, here's the whatever, you know? So yeah. I think keeping that in mind is really important because we want to, this study was mostly coming from, um, an evaluation and assessment standpoint. So it's mostly trying to clarify, hey, if you're a clinician or you're a parent and you're observing your child's play skills, keep this in mind, right? About how you might skew it based off of what language they have or what they don't have, um, especially for speech therapists, because that's what we're doing when we assess. We're looking at, okay, are they using possessives? Are they not? Are they doing, you know, are they are they putting, you know, two and three words together? Are they doing, you know, and we're doing that at the same time that we're evaluating their symbolic play at the same time that we're evaluating their cognitive skills at the same time that we're evaluating their speech skills, their articulation skills all at the same time. So it's, um, it's important to keep these things in mind as far as how we observe and how we interpret the information from the child. Oh, that makes so much sense. Um, so one of the things, um, I wanted to get your thoughts on and see if you could provide parents with, I know you mentioned some of the things that you look for when you're observing children in play. What are some, I guess, what are some things that parents might want to keep in mind when they're observing, say like the zero to five kind of age range, which I know is kind of a big age range, but Mm -hmm. um, in terms of like, I don't want to say milestones, but what are some of the things that should be some look fors that parents should be trying to um, observe and then sort of how can that be encouraged? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it is a big age range. So I would say- Or like, let's say like two to five. 
Okay. Um, so for, yeah, I mean, that's, that's shorter. I mean, they're playing, but like mm-hmm. when parents think of play, they think more of like real active play, like playing pretend and building blocks and doing that versus like a six month old who's quote unquote playing by like looking around the room. So I guess like that two to five age range is probably more. Yes. Yeah. Definitely from zero to two, it's more of a, they're in their own um, kind of sensory motor learning and they're um, in their own space trying to figure out how objects work, how, you know, how the world works. Um, and once they get a little bit older, um, closer to three, I'd say that's when they're developing more of their social pragmatic skills. I mean, they're developing social skills from the beginning, learning, you know, this is how we take turns when we talk. This is how we, you know, respond to questions. Um, But more of that interactive play with other children, um, that comes along. So I would say from two to five, we're really observing, okay, are they doing parallel play? Like if there's other children around, um, are they engaging with those children? Are they withdrawing? Are they following the same patterns of play over and over? Um, or are they using um, different types of play schemas each time they sit down to play? Um, those are just some of the things that we look for. I mean, I it's really, I could go into so much more detail because like I said, every age we're really looking for very specific things at three, at four, at five. Um, however, the, kind of the big picture things that we're looking for are the patterns. So mm-hmm. um, if I see a child and they only want to play in one specific way um, every time they sit down to play and they don't ever try a different version of that or change it at all, that's something I'm going to be looking at and monitoring, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of variability um, between that two to five age range, but some specific things that parents should look for are that kind of repetitiveness. Um, also, are they getting more creative? Are they getting more flexible? Or do they, again, use toys in a singular way? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some of the things that we're looking at. Awesome. No, that makes, that makes sense. Um, and does it matter from your perspective, like the types of toys that kids are provided with, like are certain toys better than others in terms of specifically, I guess, looking at it from like a speech and language perspective, um, what, you know, what types of toys would you recommend or what types of toys would you, would you say to steer clear of? Yes. So um, I recently did a post about this on my Instagram and I'll probably do more um, because that's a big question. And for me, um, we want to look for toys where the child is activating the use of the toy. So we want um, any kind of toy where um, it's not doing the work for them just like similarly to a screen, right? So if it's doing the singing and it's doing the lighting up and it's doing all of that, that is taking away from um, what the child needs to do to actively engage their brain. Um, And so open-ended toys are great. Um, Close-ended toys are great too. So open-ended meaning they're like blocks or things that they can build and use a million different ways. Close ended being like a puzzle where, you know, each piece goes in, it comes out and that's what it does. Right. Mm -hmm. So we 
both of those are great um, because when you present children with materials that, um, and going back to Montessori, materials that require the child to problem solve um, and figure out, you know, sequences of steps. Okay, first I have to take, you know, the puzzle piece and I have to try it here. And then I have to, oh, maybe I need to turn it around. Um, They're actively developing those cognitive skills that we use as adults, you know, so we, that's their turn and that's kind of their space to be able to practice those things. Awesome. So can you just let everybody know where they can find you, your site, your socials, all of that fun stuff, if there's an email contact, um, any way for people to get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. So um, on Instagram, it's um, at the Montessori SLP. And for email, it's the Montessori SLP at gmail.com. I'm happy to answer questions if anybody wants to send me anything. Um, And I answer DMs. Um, pretty much every day. Um, But yeah, I'm mostly on Instagram. So that's where they can find me. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was awesome to chat with you. Thank you, Alana. Thanks for having me. Hey, friend. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of the Play, Learn, Thrive show. I'm happy you stopped by for another week of learning with me. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. I so appreciate your feedback. I'd also love for you to join our community of over 20,000 parents on Instagram. You can find us at Play, Learn, Thrive Kids. 